Welcome to Premier Express Level 145. In this podcast, we are looking at the aerodynamics of high-speed trains and crosswinds. We'll go through the general aerodynamics as to how certain modifications affect the lift, side force, and rolling moment, including how the nose of the train affects these values. And to do that, we'll be looking at a paper called Numerical Studies on Aerodynamics of High-Speed Railway Trains Subjected to Strong Crosswinds. So you can find this in the link in the description. It's open access, so you can play along at home. So there are a couple interesting things to look at at when looking at high-speed trains in crosswinds. The first is that for a crosswind to deviate from an almost aligned uh, train, it needs to be quite strong because if the train is moving fast, then the vector diagram to give the resulting wind direction means that the crosswind needs to be strong. So if, for example, you had your train going at 300 kilometers per hour, but the wind was only like 30 kilometers per hour coming from the side, directly side on, when you do the vector diagram, it's still not gonna be that much. It might only be a few degrees deviation. So to get a significant deviation for this entire wind, you need to have quite a strong crosswind. And as such, these winds are less common than just everyday winds. But then there's another aspect you can think about, which is that if a train is moving faster, then the aerodynamic forces become greater because the lift and side forces are proportional to the velocity squared. So that makes the high-speed train operation fairly unique. And as such, there is potential for a strong crosswind to create enough force on a high-speed train to make it unsafe. And that's what we, these researchers are investigating in this paper. So these researchers are looking into CFD usage for this paper. And one thing that's really cool about this is that they're using a one-to-one model. So one of the main reasons why they say they want to use CFD for this investigation is because if you were to use a wind tunnel, for example, trying to use a one-to-one scale uh, <laughs> train is almost impossible. I mean, there's no wind tunnel on earth that's big enough. So you have to go for a model. So using CFD though, you can get away with this one-to-one model and look at the general effects quite easily. So that's why they used the CFD here. That's the only practical application. So unfortunately, they used RANS for this um, study, which while this is better than a poke in the eye, it means that we will be lacking the finer details, including any transient phenomena. So RANS really just averages everything out. So that's what we'll see. So let's look at this high-speed train model they are investigating. So we have in figure one here, the general model they are using is called a TMC-MTMC train. This is a funny acronym, but it's quite logical because the entire train consists of three separate compartments, so three vehicles they call it. Each train is like a little compartment or a um, carriage. So there is the TMC section at the front and at the back of the train. So we have this front part here, and then at the back they just have this exact same compartment just reversed. Then in the middle, they have the M compartment, which is this middle bit here. And for those of you just listening to this, uh, you can watch the video on Spotify and or YouTube, but I'll, <coughs> I'll describe the CAD to you. So the like front and back is like a typical train where you have the nose section, which is slightly slanted, and they do check, in, check out a few different slant angles. But then the middle carriage is really just like this rectangular prism. There's no slants to the f- uh, front or rear faces. So interestingly, from this view, the front of the high-speed train isn't really that pointed as I mentioned in this picture. The nose is angled a little, but not nearly as much as other high-speed trains like the Shikansen in Japan. The front and rear parts of the train, which are called TMCs, are 24.4 meters long, while the middle compartment is, which is called an M compartment, is 22.8 meters long. So the entire train is 71.6 meters long, which is why we mentioned earlier that trying to put this in a wind tunnel is (laughs) impossible. So that's why they use CFD. The TMC and M compartments are 3 meters wide and are 0.8 meters from the ground and extend up to 3.855 meters from the ground, so that that high. In addition to this, these researchers looked at four different high-speed train noses. 
so and the effects of these trained noses on the effects of the crosswind at different angles on the lift coefficient side forces and rolling uh, pitch, rolling moment coefficients not pitching moment rolling moment so in addition to this they show in table one they have the dimensions of the four noses and let me scroll to figure two so we can see them here so the h dimension is simply the height the l1 dimension is the distance from the bottom of the nose to the bottom of the end of the nose and then the l2 distance is the distance from the top of the nose like the like when you go to the top of the, the um on top of the train the front of the nose all the way to the back of the nose when you're on top so these two um, lengths here change effectively how slanted the front nose is we also have h which is the height of the vehicle and then w which is the width of the vehicle so these uh, four configurations result in different nose angles and we have the different um, dimensions here so they range the width is always three meters so it stays as a constant l2 which is the distance on top of the train from the front of the nose to the rear of the nose always stays at 0.46 meters whereas l1 which is the distance from the bottom of the nose like the front bottom nose to the rear of the bottom of the nose is is either 1.6 meters or three meters and the height ranges from 2.6 meters to three meters so looking at all of these different configurations and if you do the math you'll find out that the sleekest nose angle is about 45 degrees while the most upright angle is about 69 degrees and the other two configurations fall within that uh, range there so let's move on to the cfd setup now so i'm not really sure what the domain size is because they say something that's quite interesting that i don't quite understand i'll i'll um say it word for word they say in order to facilitate the change of wind direction regular 24 angular prisms with a radius of 250 meters and 50 meters in height are established in the whole circulation domain with a train model in the center so i think they're talking about the domain size here i think from this excerpt what they mean is that the domain is a circular domain with a radius of 250 meters and then the height is 50 meters this makes a lot of sense because if you have a circular domain you can then specify the wind angle quite easily and not have to worry about separation on the corners of the domain so i think the domain is 500 meters in diameter which is huge but obviously the train is 71 meters long so it's not that big in comparison and the height is 50 meters so that's quite a that's quite tall the the train itself is only like three or four meters high off the ground so the grid is structured which means that the cells are uniform blocks they're not prisms which means that the domain is very ordered so the benefit of meshing your domain with a structured mesh so you can see here in figure three you have all these blue lines those are i'll zoom in a little bit actually that's a structured mesh so uh, this extends out into the domain as well and the main advantage of the structured mesh is that you uh, don't use fewer cells so you don't have to um, have like all these weird angles and like prisms and whatever that are just going into the small cavities you can just use these blocks and that reduces how many cells you can use to get the same kind of mesh the downside of using the structured mesh is that you don't capture the finer details of the geometry nor the flow physics as well so that's a trade-off between a structured and unstructured mesh and pretty much all cfd solvers have these two different options so overall this domain has 2 million cells with a minimum grid spacing of 0.1 meters so 0.1 meters is not very fine but then again, we have a train which is 71 meters long, so relatively speaking, it's quite fine. Now, one thing that's interesting is that they use a non-slipped wall for a non-slip wall for the walls, which is an interesting approach because yes, the wind flowing along the ground, which is also a wall, will produce a boundary layer. But the wind 
that the train is not is feeling is not just the wind from the atmosphere but also from its own motion so as you like have the train going along obviously it goes at 200 kilometers per hour or whatever and the wind is not actually moving compared to the like it's not moving the train is moving through the wind then you have on top of that the crosswind so the boundary layer will be thicker here because they have the entire ground as a non-slip and then you have the entire wind going along like the wind from the crosswind plus the like relative motion between the train and the wind and the air coupled into that as well so the boundary layer should be thicker than what it will be in reality unless i'm reading the setup incorrectly but i don't think i am so that means that this non-slip boundary condition for the ground is not that accurate um, in reality you could either correct for this by making the ground a moving uh, ground condition or by altering the coefficients in the terminus model the former way being much easier than the latter way so if you were to just have the moving ground condition for the ground then what would happen is you would have a relative difference in velocities between the oncoming wind and the ground itself that would then simulate the crosswind and then the moving ground itself simulates the motion of the train compared to just ambient air or the, the tracks or whatever you want to call it like that's that's the reference frame so anyway so the terminus model that they use because they are using a um, RANS setup that which means they have to use a terminus model is the Kepsilon realizable which is okay but not great you know it's um more towards the dodgy end than the really good end the mesh independence study was quite interesting though so if we go down a little bit we have the model validation a bit here but if we go up we have the mesh validation around here somewhere here we go so a mesh independence study is used to make sure that the resolution of your mesh is is adequate the way we usually do this is by making three meshes ranging from coarse to fine and then one in, in between each mesh should be significantly finer than the last and a good rule of thumb is that there should be twice as many cells in the next mesh than the previous mesh so the coarsest mesh let's say you have 1 million cells the next level up which is like the medium fineness would be 2 million and then the finest mesh would be 4 million so that's a good way of determining whether your mesh is independent or not so in this mesh independent study the researchers only used two meshes the first had 1.52 million cells and the second had 2 million cells this is a 33% refinement, which is better than nothing, but it should really be more. And the reason why is because if you have a small change in the number of um, cells, then you don't really get a very accurate idea as to if your mesh has converged or not. However, the more interesting thing is that they say that the difference in the lift coefficients between these two resolutions was very small. I'm not really sure what very small means. It's a qualitative statement. I'm not sure what the quantitative actual result is whether this is 0.1% difference 1% difference or even 5% difference but whatever it is they just say it, it's very small so that's they're saying it's validated so I'm not sure what that means but so let's assume that this difference was only 0.1% which means that the mesh is quite nice what this also means is that potentially the mesh that they then end up using was overkill because we don't know how many how few cells we need to still get the same result they only looked at two different cells uh, meshes which we had 1.5 million and 2 million cells if we went down to 1.3 million for example do we still get a very similar lift force coefficient so that's why um, we need to have three different mesh levels usually to begin with so the reason why having three different levels of refinement is better because ideally the coarsest level is significantly different to the medium refinement but then the medium refinement is very close to the fine refinement 
So that would then give us a good idea as to how many cells we really need to get an accurate simulation. And this may not be such a big deal if you're only running a few simulations, but in this study where they had almost 30 simulations, they could have saved a lot of time by finding the lowest number of cells and then gone without instead of going with like 1.5 million or 2 million cells. That's additional cells that you don't really need and that increases computational time. So another interesting thing to note is that this mesh independent study was performed at a wind your angle of 90 degrees. That means that the wind was coming directly from the side and I'm not sure why this configuration was chosen as the mesh independence configuration, but it's interesting. It might just be because it was the most extreme. So the mesh independence study was interesting. It's generally speaking decent. I mean, there's only one thing that um, I'm not too sure about, which is when they say that the deviations of the lift force coefficients between different mesh sizes are very small. What that very small is, I'm not too sure. As for the number of cells, if you wanted to make this a more efficient process, you could have gone for like a coarser mesh and see if that um, you can get away with that still and reduce the number of cells that you need and then you know it'll make it quicker. So anyway, the researchers investigated wind angles from zero degrees to 90 degrees with 15 degree increments making it seven different crosswind configurations from zero degrees, 15 degrees, 30 degrees, 45, 60, 75, and 90. To validate this CFD, the researchers used some data from a wind tunnel experiment. However, that experiment was on a British train and not this one. This one is like a high-speed train in China, whereas this other one is a British train in, in Britain. So they're relatively similar geometries though, but they do differ a little bit. In figure six, we see the comparison here, so, so for the validation, the blue line is for the experimental data, the red line is for this CFD, and we see the lift and rolling uh, moment coefficients for the two different types of trains for different wind yaw angles. The CFD results give the exact same trends as experimental data, namely that when the wind's yaw angle increases, the lift coefficients increases dramatically. Also, as the wind yaw, wind's yaw angle increases, the rolling moment coefficient also increases, as you can see here. And it's a little surprising just how much the yaw angle affects the lift coefficient. I mean, <laughs> at a zero degree angle attack, uh, sorry, at a zero degree yaw angle, these trains produce no lift. But as the yaw angle goes up to 90 degrees, so completely perpendicular to the trains, these trains produce a lift coefficient of 0 0.9, which is <laughs> really good considering that this is not a, an airfoil. Some airfoils don't even produce this much lift. Granted, they're not very good airfoils, but still these airfoils are airfoils and they're not trains. And this train produces more lift than some of these airfoils. And it's interesting because when you think about a, a train, like from a side on point of view, it's quite bluff. So to have the train producing this much lift, it's possibly just because the flow hits the train, then it like goes over the top and it and it separates so you have just low pressure generally speaking there underneath you have the railway and the track so you know there's not much going on there in terms of flow physics um, at least chaotic flow physics and so we just get a pressure difference which then results in this lift i'm not too sure we don't have um, flow vis for this but that might be why we get such a high lift coefficient for these trains it's very um, very interesting and very amazing so another interesting thing is that the lift production is fairly linear with your angle so as we just double the angle, the lift production kind of doubles. So we conclude that the general trends are definitely validated. As for the actual values, there is no way to tell. The error could be 1% or even 10%. Because we, um, first of all, we don't we have different trains. And secondly, um, the CFD, again, we're using RANDs and we don't know if um, like what the very small deviations in that lift coefficient between the different measures uh, meant. Anyway, let's move on to the results. So in figure seven, we get some pretty cool surface pressure measurements on the train with different yaw angles. 
as expected, as your angle increases, more and more pressure is felt on the windward side, so the, the side that the wind is like crashing into. And what's more, less and less pressure is felt on the nose of the train. So as the, as the wind comes around from the front of the train to the side of the train, there's less and less pressure on the nose, which makes sense. So these two results are very ex ex expected because when the wind is hitting the side more and more and not the front, there is more deceleration of the flow and hence a higher static pressure on the side facing the wind more. So effectively, whichever side is facing the wind is going to be feeling a higher pressure because you have all that kinetic energy from the dynamic pressure being converted into pressure we can feel uh, on the surface. So if you don't know the difference between static pressure, dynamic pressure, and um, total pressure, check out this video here, which is a, um, or actually, if you're on Spotify, actually, you should probably go to YouTube and go to our Aero Fundamentals um, videos and type in dynamic pressure, static pressure, and total pressure, and you'll find that video. I was going to put a little card here, but if you're watching Spotify, you can't click the card. So <laughs> check that in on YouTube instead to get that video, which tells you the difference between dynamic pressure, static pressure, and total pressure. So let's go down to figure eight, where we see the variations in the aerodynamic force on the train under different your, uh, wind your angles. This is on the effects of the lifts and side force and rolling moment coefficients. So when it comes to the side force and rolling moment coefficients, the front compartment is definitely affected the most with both of these quantities. And the lift coefficient, um, which is generally speaking affected across all different three compartments, um, rises steady, steadily with increasing your angle from zero degrees from zero um, in terms of the lift coefficient, side force coefficient and rolling moment coefficient to about 0 0.9 when the wind is at a 75 degree your angle and then it drops slightly at 90 degrees. So in other words, <laughs> the side force coefficient, lift force coefficient and rolling moment coefficient all start at zero when the your angle is zero. And as you increase it to 90 degrees, they all pretty much increase by the same amount to about 0 0.9, 0 0.8. So that's quite interesting that they all hover around the same amount, just the coefficient. So the side force and rolling moment coefficients of the middle and rear compartments are also affected with different your angles, but not as much. So let's look at the effects of the train's height to width ratio with different wind your angles on the lift coefficient. So in other words, as we change the train sleekness in terms of the height to width ratio, how does that affect uh, the lift coefficient when we have different wind your angles? So this is shown in figure 11 here. So the researchers looked at each of the compartments separately and then the whole train together. In all of them, the effects of the height to width ratio only really affects the effects of the yaw angle on the lift coefficient when the yaw angle gets extreme, so above 60 degrees. Below that, the, width, the height to width ratio makes almost no difference to the lift coefficient when we change the yaw angle or when we have different height to width ratios as well. When we get above 60 degrees, we see consistently that increasing the height to width ratio increases lift production. So we see here in case one, that's where we have the lowest height to width ratio. As we go to case three, which is the blue one, we get a significantly higher with height to width ratio, which means that the train is a bit sleeker in that direction. And we get an increase in lift coefficient. When we get above, um, so we don't really have any surface pressure measurements for these cases, but I, th so I don't know exactly the reason why this happens, but I think that the reason why we get an increased lift coefficient with increasing height to width ratio is because when we get more deflection of the wind, or when we get an increased uh, height to width ratio, we get more deflection of the wind. So what that means is that the wind will jump over the carriage more, and that potentially results in lower pressure on top, and that results in more lift. I wouldn't be surprised if all the compartments, regardless of the height to width ratios, experience flow separation on their roofs because of the height to width ratios are quite extreme at around two. 
but I think increasing this height to width ratio will result in more deflection of the air, which I think increases the lift. I think that's why we get a higher lift coefficient when we increase the height to width ratio at higher yaw angles. As I said, we don't have any surface pressure measurements or even flow vis, so I'm not sure if this is the exact reason, but I think this is what's happening here to get this trend. So for the side force coefficient, the train's height to width ratio didn't really affect it, even with extreme wind yaw angles. So we see here in figure 12, we have the side force, and <laughs> regardless of the wind yaw angle, changing the height to width ratio makes almost no difference. And in fact, we get a few little outliers, which I think is mainly due to CFD error. So, and similarly with the rolling moment in figure 13, again, the height to width ratio doesn't make too much of a difference. And these differences I think would probably lie somewhere around the CFD error based on the CFD setup. So the researchers also gave the effects of the length to width ratio of the, on the coefficient with different when your angles, which we see in figure 14 here. So this ratio of length to width tells us in fact, effectively how pointed the nose of the train is with an increasing length to width ratio, meaning a more pointed nose. Interestingly, like the height to width ratio, only when the wind yaw angle increases to above 60 degrees, do we see any real significant effects. In fact, when we get above 60 degrees, increasing the length to width ratio of the train's nose increases the lift coefficient. Increasing the lift to width ratio effectively makes the train sleeker at the front, which means that a sleeker nose increases the lift of the train at a greater wind yaw angle. So one thing I really would have liked to have more in this paper, or at all really, is flow vis and more surface pressure data. This is CFD, so that stuff is super easy to make, but alas, perhaps another time. So let's just recap what we covered in this podcast. We went through trains and how your angles affect the lift coefficient, the side force coefficient, and the rolling moment coefficient. And what we found was that as you increase the yaw angle, effectively we get a lot more differences in the lift coefficient with different geometries on the train. So if we change the nose geometry of the train and we keep the yaw angle at like zero degrees or even 30 degrees or even 45 degrees, we don't really get much of a change in the lift coefficient or side force or pitching or rolling moment. But as soon as we go to like 60 degrees or higher, we then start to see differences with different um, train noses. And that tells us that the train nose is particularly, we need a sleeker train nose to like maximize the lift coefficient. And if we want to reduce the lift coefficient, make the train blunter at the front with different yaw angles. The problem with that is if we have a blunter train nose, generally speaking, we will get a higher drag. So that's the trade-off there. So with that, my little aerodynamicist, we come to the end of this podcast. If you liked it, make sure to give it a like. It helps us out a lot. And if you want to see more like this, click the subscribe button or the follow button, which will help you out a lot because you'll see more in the future. You'll get notified automatically. And if you want to get better at aerodynamic theory and or CFD, check out our courses in the link in the description where we go through stuff like this. So for example, in this podcast, I went through uh, the CFD setup and where the strengths were, where some weaknesses were and how to make this more efficient. We do stuff like this in our CFD course so you can get better at CFD as well. And if you want to make your experiments two to four percent more accurate, get yourself an atmosphere hawk. It's an instrument we make to accurately measure the density of air. The reason why this is important is because the density of air always changes. For example, if you come into your wind tunnel in the morning, then come back after lunch, the density of air has changed by a few percent in just a few hours. It's amazing. That's because the density of air is affected by the temperature, barometric pressure, and humidity. And all these things do change all the time. So, you know, we know when we wake up, it's colder 
at midday it's warmer and the barometric pressure fluctuates as well as does the humidity so for example uh, the other day i was um, at the office and when i got there it was like a humidity of like 29 percent. it was very dry then when uh, by the time i left like because there were so many people now in there like pumping out heat and like water from our mouths and sweat and whatever the humidity actually went up to i think it was like 55 percent over just a few hours so that's how the humidity does change as well especially if you have people in there um so having even your so having uh, even in your wind tunnel area changes to the density of air because you are there means that you're going to have areas in your wind tunnel uh, data so what's more the density of air changes even more than two to four percent between days weeks months and seasons so 10 to 15 10 to 15 percent changes are very normal which means that you need to take into them into account when you have your experiments what's more if you don't take them into account then you're not only um just getting random error in most of your experiments a lot of the stuff you find is going to be in that random error and you can't really be sure that what you're finding is true also when you try to use this data for your cfd validation you're going to have problems validating your cfd you're going to have some things that will line up other things that won't in reality nothing actually should be lining up properly because you have errors <laughs> and if they do line up that's just fluke and you can't really trust your cfd anyway so you need to know what the density of air is in your experimental data so that you can then map that to your CFD and use the right density of air at least, or at least um, factor that in when you validate your CFD against your experimental data. That saves yourself a lot of headaches. So get yourself an MSU Hawk and make your experiments and CFD more accurate. You can find the link to it in the description below. And I'll see you next podcast. Peace out, amigos.